Good evening. Hi. Uh, I'm Michael. I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you for the introduction. Thank you all for being here on this Friday evening. Um, I know sometimes Friday is a night to kind of relax or go out and do something fun, but I appreciate you all uh, taking the time out of your schedules to be here. Uh, it's an honor to be able to sit sit instead of stand. It's a little bit different. I'm used to standing, but it's an, uh, it's an honor to be able to sit here tonight. Um, for many years, I didn't think I deserved a life that I have today. Uh, I was born in San Antonio, um, came from a family, uh, it was just predominantly my mother, my brother and I, and my dad left when I was five. Um, I got sober in July, on July 27th, 2007, so it's just over 11 years, which is still baffling to me. Um, but looking back, uh, I was diagnosed with depression and various other things very early on and given medication very early. Uh, I think eight was when I took my first antidepressant. Um, for a long time, I used that as an excuse um, that I felt my brain was programmed, that I had to have something to take every morning in order for me to make me feel normal because um, I never felt okay with who I was, even at a young age, um, having depressive and suicidal thoughts. Uh, at Ages 8, 9, and 10 was not how I envisioned life is supposed to be. Um, but that's what I was dealing with. And, and coming from a home uh, where there was not a fatherly figure, uh, and there was, it was two brothers, right, and my mom, and bless her heart, we just kind of ran the house, if you will. Um, she kind of noticed that we were having a little bit of trouble in terms of like behavior and of course, I, as I mentioned with depression and stuff. And so I was always in counseling um, and she knew that they, we were lacking a fatherly figure. So we were at church. We were members of a church. So we went to church. And when I say we went to church, I don't mean just like Sundays we got dressed up. I mean like we were at church. Uh, we were there like every Wednesday for, she had choir practice, but they'd have youth activities. And then we were there on Saturday evenings, on Sunday mornings, um, set, I mean just all the time. And um, the thing that, the reason that's such a prominent thing for my story is, is when I entered these rooms um, for the first time uh, with hope that there was, the ability to remove this feeling that I had and this inability to stop drinking, um, the first thing that I balked at was that, that it, they brought up God, that God was mentioned. I mean, it was on the walls. Um, people were talking about it when they were reading the traditions, and, and it really frightened me. Um, and the reason for that is because as I sat in the sanctuary um, on Sundays, I would see people uh, during the sermon, during hymns, what have you, really being able to get and absorb something. I'd see people with their eyes closed and their hands up, um, singing along or crying with whatever the, uh, the minister was saying. And I remember sitting there, kind of similar to what I am right now, just kind of nervous, rubbing my legs, just like, why don't I feel anything? Like, what? And then at the same time, the lessons that they were teaching about trying to be a good person, um, they talked about some consequences that scared me if you weren't a good person. But every thought and every action that I had since I could remember was like to lie or to try to get away with something, um, sneak around my mom's back to do whatever. Uh, you know, we, we were like even graffiti, like just silly stuff like that kids do. But like that's all we did and that's all I thought about. So I, number one, didn't feel worthy to sit in that room. And number two, could not feel the same thing that those people were feeling. 
Um, the, I'd have kumbaya moments, of course, like when we're all sitting around like intimate situation talking about stuff like where I could feel like I could actually I feel like I related to them and I was feeling what they were feeling, but I could never take it home with me. Um, and so obviously like, uh, initially I was not introduced to alcohol or drugs, um, until a little bit later. Uh, well, I say later, late for us or late for normal, whatever. Anyway, uh, so, um, what that looked like was, uh, I started different obsessions. I, I got really into something and when I got into it, I got into it on an unhealthy level, whether it be music or whether it was, uh, I remember when I was little, it was frogs. Everything was frogs. It was just like, to the point where my, my English teacher and my mother sat me down one time and they were like, Hey, you got to chill. You can't write every paper on frogs. Like, it's just like, that's how my brain works because looking back, like it filled something. It made me like, I didn't have to be me, um, in those moments. And, then fast forward, my, my dad uh, had remarried at this time, and I, we had older step-siblings, and uh, always looking up to them, wanting to fit in. They were pretty, you know, it was probably, I think, five to six years older was the smallest gap. And uh, I remember um, the first time I was introduced to alcohol, uh, it was almost like a subtle threat. It was like, hey, we're going to do this, and you have to also, so you can't tell on us. Um, which I acted like what but I was like down you know like yeah let's do this and um you know it was because I wanted to fit in I wanted to be cool and I wasn't going to tell you know like that was fine but uh so I took my first drink at age 10 um and it pretty much kicked off like looking back um I could identify the alcoholism and drug addiction very very like it, it kicked in within that first couple of months after taking that drink um you know, I, I remember thinking like, wow, I don't care. <laughs> you know, all the self-consciousness and then the depressive thoughts would go away in those moments. Um, but then when you sober up, like it comes back tenfold. It just felt even more intense. It, I, I felt even more isolated, even more alone. Uh, and so I sought out other things and pretty much um, uh, there's things that I did that uh, due to traditions, I'm not going to mention here out of respect for AA. But I remember thinking, like, I had this ladder of, like, I will never do this. We'll go this way. It's a basement with stairs. I will never do any of this stuff. And so looking down in that basement thinking, like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And then you take a step down and you do something. You're like, well, I'm, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. And then you do that. And then, well, okay, I'm not going to do that. And then before I know it, uh, I'm lost and I'm gone. Um, somehow managed to graduate high school and college, um, and hold a job for a few years, um, but it just intensified, you know. And I, I am a drug addict as well. That is part of my story. Um, but alcohol was always, always, always present and always what got me to get back when I tried to wean off of something. Um, alcohol was the first thing that I touched um, because it gave me that warm, fuzzy feeling almost instantly, and I didn't have to feel what I was feeling and that darkness and that emptiness that I was going through. Um, I had some very traumatic things happen to me as a child, and I remember for a long time feeling like I was not able to share that with anyone until I started suffering consequences for my drinking and my using. And then I had a reason to do and act the way that I did. And I used that as a weapon whenever I was confronted with people saying, like, why are you acting that way? Or why are you, uh, are you okay? What, like, you know, and I said, well, yeah. And then I'd sit them down and, and not 
out of trauma therapy to talk about things, but just to get your sympathy and your understanding of like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, I'd probably drink too if that happened to me. And, you know, being so engulfed in that, um, trying to balance and carry uh, different lives and situations and, and putting on different faces for different places. I mean, I, uh, I remember my brother, uh, who's also in recovery, um, when he was spiraling out of control, he went faster than I did. And I put on a brave face and pretended that I wasn't either because I had the job. He was on the streets. And so my mother would call me worried about him and I'd be drunk uh, or loaded and just say, yeah, like, that's awful. You know, I can't, I can't believe, like, we need to get him help. And, you know, uh, so just trying to manage and balance these different things was just very, very exhausting. It's very exhausting. Um, and the thing that, like, I guess the turning point, if you will, was um, I ended up losing my job that I had forever with the state. And I don't know if any of y'all ever worked for the state. It's really, really hard to get fired uh, from a state job, um, but I did it. And, uh, yeah, and, and when I did that, it was almost like I couldn't hide those, those lies anymore. I couldn't hide. I couldn't just juggle this like, oh, everything's okay. Yeah, I'm fine. And I lived out of town, so it was easy for me to just say I was okay over the phone if I answered it. Um, and then all of a sudden, like I didn't have a job, so I didn't, I didn't have an excuse or a reason or I couldn't think of anything, had no savings. So there was no way for me to get out of this. And so I just disappeared and just took off. Um, my brother had already absconded at that point. He was in and out of jail. And for over a year, my mother had no idea where her sons were. Um, and I remember every day, just like my heart breaking, because I wanted to let her know where I was, but in my sick, insane head, um, it was better that she didn't know where I was and could see what was going on than to know how bad it was. And that was the thought process I had. It was better for her just to not know than to, to present uh, her sons as junkies. Because, um, you know, my mom is one of the sweetest people like that I've ever met. And if you all knew her, you would never think that she raised two felons. Um, but that's where this disease took us. Um, it was just that darkness and trying to mask uh, and change the way I felt. And I did it at any means necessary, even down to like there are certain um, alcohol drinks that I can't stand to swallow. But... Uh, it was um, better than feeling normal. You know, I remember um, just wanting to change the way I felt so bad, and I would do anything to, to do that. And I ended up in jail um, for about five months, and the whole time I'm thinking, okay, I'm never doing anything again, ever. And then when I got out, uh, I stayed clean and went to a couple of meetings for about two weeks, and then just before I knew it, it was worse. And I was right back right back to what I was doing, but it was worse. Uh, and at that point, um, I had already been to treatment one time, but I went for other reasons. I went because my mom found us on the streets. And she confronted my brother and I and said, look, y'all need help. My brother's like, I'm not going. And I looked at him and I was like, you jackass. Like one of us has to go. She's crying. Like, oh, so I went because my mom was crying. That is literally the reason I went to treatment for the first time because I didn't want my mother to cry. So uh, obviously not going to keep you sober because I didn't have a desire to stop. I didn't want to feel the way I felt anymore, but I didn't have a desire to stop. I, I didn't think I was going to, you know, be done by any means. And so, um, so then that's when I disappeared. That was fast forward. Um, 
that's when I disappeared. And then um, they found us, and, and I went and stayed with my dad. I ended up, um, he got me a job at a gas station, uh, completely humbled at that point, a college graduate working at a gra- gas station, you know, and I was just like, well, how did I get here? And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember. So um, I don't remember all of it. But I, I do know that uh, I did, I worked really hard, and then I, I just fell back into it, you know, and I, I didn't have the ability to stop. And so the jumping off place, if you will, was at the time my brother was uh, black sheep from the family um, because of his continued, like, careless. He was the type, you know, the, the, the part of the book that talks about control and enjoy? So I was more of a control freak. Like, I needed to make sure that, like, I had enough to go so far. I never made it so far, but like I just had that, right? And so when I'm doing that and I'm controlling it, there's zero enjoyment in any of that because I just need to be normal, right? I'm waking up feeling like this. I just need to get here, usually get to about here. Initially, we drink. People, normal people drink to get up here, right? It's Friday night. Let's get loose. Let's get wild. And so, yeah, you have a good time. But like I started here with my day and I just needed to get here. And so I needed to make sure that I stayed at least at this level, right? Going up here, that was a privilege if I had maybe some extra money, you know, and then I would be able to cross that and, like, have some fun with it. But that was rare. It was all about control and maintaining just some normalcy because that's all I ever wanted in life is to be normal. And my brother, on the other hand, was if I have it, it's going to be gone quickly. And whether it be drink or whatever. Um, so with his, it was all enjoyment and no control. Um, but then when I tried to mix the two, uh, it would drive me literally insane, as it talks about in the book, you know, that, that it will lead to death or insanity. Because every day I thought if I wake up and do X, Y, and Z, I'll be fine. Everything will be cool. But how does that usually turn out, right? I don't rule the world. I don't own or lease the earth. And y'all don't work for me. You know, it's like things get in the way. Um, people don't answer the phone. Money doesn't come through different circumstances and roadblocks come through. And so X, Y, and Z can't happen, right? And so Michael's left feeling miserable and I'm not, I can't even get to normal. But every day, obviously X, Y, and Z is not going to work, right? That's, that's the point I'm getting at. Like that's, it's, that's how everything has to be for me to be okay. But day by day, it never worked out. There'd be those rare occasions where everything went flawlessly, but for the most part, it did not. But every day I woke up and tried again, the same thing over and over and over again. And I thought, you know, after being in jail for a while, I thought that getting out, I would be able to, um, to escape that and find some other pattern. And then I just quickly, you know, fell back into it. And so, um, like I said, my brother was black sheeped at this point and he, uh, started helping me out, if you will, uh, in terms of providing things that I was unable to get because I didn't have a car or money at the time. And then he got arrested and he went to jail. And suddenly anything that I had uh, access to was completely cut off. And so I was instantly thrown into this spiral of like, I can't drink. I can't do anything to make me feel better. How did I start this again, number one? I sat in jail for months saying I would never, ever, ever do this again. And now it's not only worse, but I'm doing it in my father's house. Um, It's not working. And I'm left feeling like, at the point where when I'm supposed to be doing this to even feel normal or to have fun and get loose, that wasn't the case. I was in tears sometimes while I was drinking or using, especially drinking because it was extremely emotional, but, uh, drunk dialing people. And, um, so, you know, I, I remember the day that I woke up and I just felt sick and I couldn't stop shaking 
and I go back in my dad's office and um, I got sober before I think like high speed was a thing. So I'm logging on to the internet and listening to that modem like connect and I just think like stop it hurts. And like just being so irritated that like just sounds are hurting at this point, you know? Like why did I do this again? I knew what was gonna happen if I picked up again and I did anyway. Um and I look over and my dad's got a uh I think it was a shotgun in the corner. And I remember just staring at it, thinking, like, that is, like, so quick and easy. Um, and then I don't have to do this. Anymore. I can't do it to myself again. Um, and I remember sitting here, kind of like I'm sitting now, just, like, complete silence, just staring at that thing, going, like, I guess this is what I have to do. Because you put me behind bars for five months and I can't stop. What's going to stop me? I've already been medicated. I've already talked to therapists. Uh, and let me rewind a little bit. So I had gone to treatment before this. And when I was on my way to treatment for the first time, I went home to pack all my stuff. And I had roommates at the time, one of which was a heavy methamphetamine user, IV. And he walks in and he's like, uh, so you're, you're going to treatment? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, I went once. And my heart dropped. Because I was like, what do you mean you've gone to treatment? Like, You've gotten help and you're doing what you're doing? Like, I didn't know anything about I didn't even know what the 12 step, right? I just knew AA, like I thought you went to treatment and you got better. And that terrified me. So that kind of set the bar a little bit low going into treatment. And then fast forwarding now, I'm thinking like, okay, I've been to treatment. I've been given the tools. I can't apply them. I'm just going to leave. And I preface by saying that my mother was one of the sweetest people I've ever met, if not the sweetest. Um... And I remember thinking, like, there's no way she can come home to that. I don't want them to come home and see that and find me in that state. And so whatever pain I felt was cast aside, thank God. Um, And that was the reason. Not because I wanted to live. It, It wasn't because I wanted to be alive. It was because I didn't want my family to have to see that. Um, I'm really grateful for that empathy now, you know. And so I made a call to my father, and I went and got help. And um, that wasn't an easy phone call. Um, there was a lot of anger and confusion. They were like, because they thought I was doing really well at this point. I'd been sober for a while. I was picking up chips in meetings that they were taking me to and sitting down there. And every night my dad would come in, and he would tell me how proud he was of me. And I'm like, Ugh. So that's why I was staring at that gun. That was really what pushed it, because it was just like, I knew deep down I had all these secrets and all these skeletons and everybody was so proud of me. And, um, yeah. So hopefully that qualifies me a little bit. Um, I earned my seat in AA. Uh, let me take a drink real quick. So we'll get into recovery. Which is the fun part, right? This is a part where um, life's going to be amazing and all these things are going to happen and then like suddenly you're just like this ball of joy oh shit taxes are still there I still have to pay bills I gotta pay rent um, I gotta deal with emotions and stuff that I did in the past but you know what like it, it was that point where I, I was willing to do anything I was willing to do anything to the point where I went into treatment and here I am again and 
Okay, so I came to treatment with nothing. Like, you probably hear that often. Like, with literally a bag of clothes that I bought at the thrift store. My mom bought, excuse me, whoa, it's it too much credit, that my mom bought me at the uh, thrift store. And, uh, you know, I remember, like, going there and sitting down in treatment, and luckily it was, like, a vivacious group, and they were on fire, and they were excited, and I was, like, amped. I was like, okay, I think I can get down with this. And um, I had detox on the floor of my dad's office. He wouldn't let me out of his sight. Uh, and so I went to work with him. Uh, and so I was relatively feeling kind of semi-normal. I wasn't sleeping well, but other than that, like, I just kind of felt okay. So by the time I got to treatment, I was open-minded and willing to have fun because these people looked like they were having fun. And I was talking about the trash bag full of clothes because I had nothing at this point, no material possessions, and I'm a collector. I always have to have, like, you know, I just collect, and I go treasure hunt, um, which became a profession later. But uh, they were walking, I just noticed something about everybody. They had this little ring. Um, actually, I saw one. They had this little ring. They ran out of my size, so I only had this little baby one, but I've had this keychain. I've had this on my keychain for the last 11 years. But everybody had this, like, it was a nail bent into a ring, and I noticed, like, everybody had one. And, like, being a Leo and also just kind of being, like, uh, never wanting to feel left out, I was like, how do you? How do you get that? And they're they're like, oh, you do your third step prayer with with Jackie Y. And I was like, well, okay, let's go do. You know, like they're like, "Mm, not yet. And so I remember, like, that was my drive, okay, in treatment to get to that third step so that I can get a damn ring. I had nothing, okay, like forgive me, but I just had nothing. And so I remember going into treatment and like we're getting there. And so it was a guy named Jackie Y out of Abilene, I think. And he came down. I was in Fredericksburg. He came down he, uh, every other week to do the third step prayer. And it turns out I got there when I hit my third step, not on the week he was coming. So I had to wait another week. And then by the time he gets there, uh, he sits down and he starts talking about, uh, he opens up with, you know, this is his third step class, blah, 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 blah. And he starts talking about, um, let's just say he's a carpenter that's mentioned in another book. Mm. And my yeah. heart sunk. And it was almost like this, like, balloon, you know, where just... Because I was like, I've, I've done this. I've been there. I sat in a room filled with stained glass. I remember looking at everybody else thinking they had something I wanted, but I could never attain it. And I'm presented with that again. And uh, I don't know why the word God didn't scare me so much going to treatment, but when I heard when that was the preface into going into the third step prayer, I then saw the third step as baptism. Um, I went through the motions and got my little ring, as y'all see, but uh, I did feel very scared and um, very afraid of the steps at that point. Uh, You know, it's funny, like, um, my roommate can attest to this, that I work with metaphors and analogies a lot and the one that stood out one of the ones that stands out to me is the desperation of a drowning man um i was willing to do whatever it took at that point yeah that made me feel uncomfortable yes i did balk yes i half-assed from that point forward and getting through the steps in treatment because of that but it didn't stop me from seeking out not wanting to go back to where i came from um and then the way that i relate to that looking at the uh Having the desperation of a drowning man would be like me sitting there treading water. Let's say we're on a boat and I fall off and I'm about to go under and you run and grab the little orange thing, right? It's the orange life preserver. And he throws it at me and suddenly I look at it and go like, I don't like the color orange. (laughs) That's the way I felt. Like I didn't have the time to balk at that. Like, I knew that if I didn't grab onto this that seemed to be working for everybody else who got those rings before I did, um, 
that I was willing to try, that I was willing to grab onto something orange that I didn't really care for. Um, and so fast forwarding, looking at like my, my struggles around uh, half measures, if you will, was not I got through to the inventory and then stopped and left. I only did half of each step up in the beginning because I understood that I was an alcoholic but I didn't fully grasp the unmanageability of it. I thought that was because I couldn't hold a job and I didn't have money. I didn't realize that it was my emotional state of mind and my insane behaviors. That's the un- unmanageability. Um, the other thing was, as I looked at step two as reading, it says, came to believe in a power uh, greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. Number one, I had no idea what sanity looked like. So I didn't know what I could be restored to. The other thing was, as I read, came to believe in a power greater than myself. Well, I had grown up in church. I knew God existed. Next. Okay, well, now turn your will and your life over. The baptism thing, I did that. Okay. And so I bing, bang, boomed. And through the grace of God and being in a community where I was surrounded by recovery 24-7, I stayed a year sober off of that minuscule idea um, just based on, this just my truth, being surrounded by people in recovery. Uh, and if that's not grace, I don't know what is. But after a year sober getting out, like I was faced with the idea of going back through the work again. Suddenly, when I moved out of the halfway house and when I moved out of that environment, it was me. And it was this half-assed relationship with God that I didn't have. And so really what I did, was, it was like trying to examine, like, what is God to me? What is that? Because obviously the idea that I grew up with wasn't working for me. It's not to say it won't work. It just wasn't working for me. And it wasn't something that I wanted to go into. But it was definitely something that, like, I knew I had to figure something out. Um, the problem is, is I had this skewed idea of difference between the words belief and the words faith. You know, I, I said, I thought that said I had to have faith in God. And since I knew he existed, that meant I had faith. But that's not the case. Um, belief means the idea that something is true or real. And then faith is that belief that's strengthened by experience. So you all believed there was going to be a speaker here tonight, right? That's why you're here. Um, You didn't know if I was going to show up on time, didn't know if I would show up at all, but you knew I would come up here, or you knew that there would be a speaker, or you believed that a speaker would be here. But if this was a reoccurring thing that I came week by week, by weeks three or four, it wouldn't even be a thought in your mind as to whether I'm going to be here or not. If I've shown up every time, I've been prompt, I've sat here for the full hour and I talked the whole time, you all would just expect Michael to be here on Friday. And that's the difference between belief and faith, is you had the idea that I was going to be here one day, but then you just knew I would show up, and that was the faith. And that's where I was lacking, because I didn't, I didn't, I thought I had to have faith in God, but I had no experience in any sort of God for myself that I could internalize. And so at a year sober, I'm faced with the question of, like, what is God? Like, how heavy is that? You know what I mean? Like, I'm this pillar of recovery, because a year in, where I was living in Kerrville, a year in Kerrville, and you're like, whoa like you know because it's it's a lot of treatment centers so people usually have just a few days and all of a sudden i'm faced with this like am i even like in like recovery am i living how i'm supposed to be i was like yeah i was living by the principles and i was doing what i was supposed to be doing um but internally like i knew that in order for a foundation to really be set for the rest of my life i had to come up with an idea of god and a concept that i could understand and get down with um and I didn't, I was about to say the way that I did that. It, it happened randomly. Um, there's a band that I like, um, and they sing a song that's pretty anti-Christian. Um, but not really. It just sounds that way. 
And so there was a commentary that he gave on one of the CDs that he released, and I was watching as a video, and it was an interview that he was giving, and the interviewer asked him, like, why did you say all that stuff? Um, and he was talking about how he grew up, his mom grew up in a very, very, very strict, um, almost dogmatic environment, and it didn't really cope with how he saw life should be living, and so he was blasting her idea of God and not the God. And the quote that I say, like, saved me and, and allowed me to open my mind and give this another chance was he said, you know, in the original Aramaic text of that other book that I talked about, um, it said in the beginning there was light and there was love. And he said, and they should have shut the book at that point. They should have stopped writing. And I remember thinking, like, I idolize this guy, right? I, like, really enjoy his music. And, and, and then I was like, what does that mean? <coughs> and then all of a sudden I was like, holy God is love. And so then from that point on, like, I started looking, like, as soon as I found, like, that simple, that flimsy read, right, that the book talks about, I grabbed the book and I started looking at all the steps and I examined them. And I saw that, like, steps one through nine is, like, me learning to love and accept myself, right? And just, like, kind of um, having the ability to own up to everything that I had done wrong, take a look at why I was acting the way I was acting, uh, and that it wasn't the rest of the world that had to blame um, So I was learning to love myself through that process. And then looking at the amends process of like sitting down and and trying to make right the the wrongs that you've done in the past and trying to uh, iron out situations and and just be there. Like to me, it was a transmission of love. And then, of course, helping other people, strangers, like taking them and helping them save their lives. Like that to me was love. And I was like, oh, my God, like God is love and loves all over the steps. And it was just this tiny, tiny, tiny concept that I could identify with and I could see happening all over my life and anywhere I looked, uh, even down to nature. You see like a deer nurturing its fawn. You know what I mean? Like I could just see like, oh, wow. And then all of a sudden the weight of this like dude that was hanging out in the clouds waiting for me to slip up so he could throw me downstairs like was gone. And I went with this simple idea of God is love. And when there's love, there's no room for hate. It just doesn't exist. And so with that foundation, I was able to greatly different now. It's very, very different now. But that was the basis. And that's what jumped it off because I was complicating the crap out of these steps. I was trying to make like some sort of, uh, I don't even know. And then I was lazy on top of it. Like I'm not going to write stuff. I don't want to have to do It's like, oh, really? You go do X, Y, and Z to make sure X, Y, and Z happened. But now you won't do some homework to save your life. Because it's pretty incredible when you look at this, right? So I've been given medication. I've medicated myself heavily. Um, I've talked to therapists. I've talked to preachers. I've talked to parents. I've talked to parents uh, of friends. And nothing would change. Nothing would change. Uh, And I'm surprised the medicines didn't. I was shocked that medicines were not working. But then all I had to do was be humble. Ask for help be honest with somebody, take a look at my life and write some stuff down and tell somebody all the stuff that I wrote down, make a list of all the stuff that I'd done wrong, make that stuff right, maintain that and go help other people and I'm okay. That's pretty profound. That's pretty profound that that science and... uh, psychology, like none of that worked, but doing some homework and getting connected to something greater than myself, allowing me to practice that humility of knowing like I don't have all the answers, but I don't have to. 
and I've been sober for 11 years. And that's pretty incredible. Um, if that's not God, I don't know what is. Because it cost me $30 to get out of bed every day. And I don't want to break traditions, but I use drugs in a very, the harshest way you can use them, if you will. That's what I'll say. Um, and I couldn't stop doing that every day. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> that's gone. I didn't have surgery. I didn't have a lobotomy. I just did some homework, got connected to something that these people told me. And that was the important thing for me was, um, you know, when I sponsor guys today, uh, uh, you included, uh, when people come up to me and they say, hey, will you be my sponsor? And I said, we can have coffee. I'd be willing to have coffee with you. Yeah, let's go talk. And the reason I say that is because one of the first things that I tell them is, look, uh, I do what I'm supposed to do, so I should stay sober because I'm honest and I have a sponsor that I work with. And I think when you're seeking out a sponsor, I'm more than willing to, but you need to ask yourself, can you be honest with me? Can you be 200% honest with me? Because at the end of our meeting, if you hold on to something, I'm going to go home and I'm going to go to sleep and things will be okay and I'll wake up, I'll do my inventory. But if you hold something back, if you show up to the doctor with bleeding ulcers and your stomach's burning and when you get there, he say, what's wrong? And you say, it just really hurts right here. It hurts so bad right here. And they give you ibuprofen and send you on your way. Are you going to get better? No, because you're not telling the truth. So find somebody, and I, I stress that, and I, you know, that was my own belief. I went through three people before I found the sponsor that I was willing to work with. Um, I did have desperation, but at the same time, um, I knew that like, I was a liar, and I knew that like, I know how to get away with stuff, and I know how to put on a brave face and make it look like I'm okay. That's my story, is just putting on a mask that says I'm okay. I've kind of struggled that with that. In sobriety, my biggest defect right now is caring too much about other people that I put myself in harm's way because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Thank God it's not using, but that's a defect that I have today, right? So I know that, um, you know, when, when people come up to me today, like I'm willing to talk to anybody, but I really put the ball in their court in that, like, you've got to be able to be honest with me because that's the only way that you're going to find freedom and it starts right there. And so I really um, appreciate the fact that, about this program, number one, that it was free it, and, and that the people kept coming and that these lights stayed on and these rooms stayed filled and that people were willing to pick me up. I mean, I remember a guy drove like 10 miles, which isn't that, you know, whatever. It's far when you're on foot. And I, he, he drove 10 miles to pick me up to take me to a meeting and I just met him the week before and I'm like, like he wants something. You know, that's where my mom, like, he's going to touch me, like something. It's, <laughs> That's what happens, right? No, so, you know, I definitely, like, was, was, there was so much good, I was intimidated by it. So much being given to me that I thought that there was a cost. But there's not. Because this tricky little program, I thought I was coming here because I wanted to stop using. And that was it. Then why am I still here? Because the drugs and alcohol were not the problem. It was the solution to the emptiness and that malady that I had inside of me. So being able to um, see that and identify that has allowed me to stay sober and not think that, like, oh, I can drink. It's been a decade. I'll be fine. I know that that's not true. I know that's not my truth. I don't struggle with it. I don't wake up every day saying I can't do it. 
but I just know that's that's my truth. Uh, I'll never clink champagne glass. Those are the little things that I held on to that like, wait a minute. I never, I'll never clink champagne glasses at New Year's or at a wedding. What am I getting? You know, like, what do you mean? I mean, those are the questions that I asked going into treatment the first time. And here's the fun. I'm going to share a funny story. We're going to backtrack for just a second because I have a little bit more time. But when I got sober the first time and I was in treatment, the NBA finals were on Spurs were uh, there. They won that year. So anyway, um, a commercial came on, right, for blueberry vodka. And I, this was like new that they started infusing these things into these into liquor. And I remember looking at that going, I'll never be able to drink that again. And I got really depressed over that. I remember I had to go talk to my counselor about it, that I, would, I, was, not, that I was never going to be able to drink this blueberry vodka. You want to hear some funny stuff? I relapsed and was out for a year and a half. Never drank the blueberry vodka. <laughs> but that just told me that like, my brain was just trying to grab whatever I could. right? So uh, anyway, today, you know what life looks like today, um, number one, I'll never forget, there's little pillars you know, there's little sayings that somebody will say in a meeting that just stick with you, that just stick with you. And the first one that I heard that I was like eye-opening was uh, somebody was like, my spiritual gauge is, gauge is, I can ask myself, what am I doing when no one's looking? And I remember sitting there at nine months over for the first time in my life going, nothing. <clears throat> wow. The other one that I got angry with and had to do some inventory around was if money can fix it, it's not a problem. Um... <laughs> But I just appreciate and I'm really grateful that, the, you know, this program has given me a life today that I'm able to, like, you know, I was duped by it. I, I started with that, that, like, I came here thinking, like, I was going to stop drinking. And then I realized I was going to live a life of recovery. So it wasn't about abstinence. It was about being in recovery. And being an alcoholic was a label that I was going to carry with me. And I had no idea I would carry it proudly, but I did. But now, the dark stuff that happened to me when I was a child... Uh, the misery, day by day, waking up, feeling sick, shaking, alone, uh, sitting in jail for five months, uh, losing every- Whoa, no, no. I don't like saying that. I don't like saying that. It's not losing. I didn't lose anything because losing would be misplacing, right? I didn't just suddenly come home and my apartment was empty. It was like, whoa, what? I didn't know. I, didn't, I made a decision at some point to get rid of my possessions. I had nothing. Uh, all those things, waking up miserable, owing people lots of money, uh, realizing that like I was a junkie, I was a deadbeat, I was everything that I said I never would be, all of that darkness that surrounded me has a purpose today. All those experiences allow me to sit here today and say, number one, I survived it. Number two, I've accepted it. God's carried me through it. And... There are people out there dying that are afraid to talk about stuff that I've talked about this evening because they don't feel like anyone can relate to them, but I can do it. I can relate to people where doctors can't. I can relate to people when they can't be honest with their parents. I have the empathy to say, like, yeah, me too. And I've seen several people shaking their heads and agreeing with some of the stuff that I'm saying this evening, so that means that we all relate, that we all have that common bond that we'll be able to share and help other people with. So my favorite thing about this program, which was the sneakiest part of it, because I was so selfish and self-centered, was that I get to help people today. I get to be a part of people's lives and watch them come from, like, nothing to things that I, like, they couldn't dream of. I couldn't, I mean, I sat across from them when they were several days sober thinking, like, ooh, 
And now one of them's a doctor, has a family. They've been able to accomplish things and continue to help other people. And I've watched this just spread in such a positive way that like, it's almost like I don't deserve to sit here. Like, why me? You know, but then I look back and reflect that like I have a purpose today. That the duty and all those things that I went through was to be able to sit here and help the next person that's struggling. And that's my duty. Uh, And, you know, it's just an honor to be able to, um, having done this over a decade, like I didn't expect to be here at this long. I didn't expect to be alive this long. Um, But just overwhelming gratitude with the, uh, the people that showed up and the people that sat here when I sat there with like in, in the back corner shaking and, and wondering like, why am I here and how did I get here? <clears throat> why do I have to go to this meeting? Why do I have to do these things for the rest of my life? All those whys and like I have answers to today. Uh, even the darkness. And the, the coolest part and my most favorite um, line out of the book is on page one. 24, I always, make, I always say 125, so I looked at my roommate just to help me remind. On 124, where it says, you know, cling to the thought that in, God, in God's hands, not Michael's hands, but in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest asset you have. It's the key to life and happiness for others. If that's not like, it's funny looking at that statement, because it's almost like, you know, cling to the thought that the dark past in God's hands, the key to life of happiness, the life and happiness for me, right? Because I'm selfish. But no, it's the key to It's for others. Like everything that I've been given today was not given to me. It was, it was because I did the work. I stay as honest as I can. I show up when I need to show up. Uh, I'm a son. I'm a brother. Uh, I'm a boyfriend. Uh, I'm employable. I pay my bills on time. I answer the phone, which is nuts. Uh, that was something I didn't do when I was in... Uh, recovery but are not and using but you know like looking back it's just so much gratitude for all the darkness that I went through like yeah I mean it kind of sucked when I was going through it but to be able to save some lives from it like it made it worth it it's 100% worth it and I wouldn't want to necessarily feel the way I felt again but I would do it again had I known that like this was going to be the result you know that, that like I'm now armed with the facts about myself that I can relate to other people and then help them get sober so that they can continue this. Because there are people that are just like, that don't know about these rooms, that don't know that there's a way out, that are staring at a gun in their father's office thinking like, this is the way out, and sometimes actually following through with it. So it's important for me to help prevent that if I can. And I do that by showing up, doing these things (laughs) daily, practicing these principles in all my affairs, and if I screw up, making it right which I'm willing to admit I've not had a perfect run by any means. And then I've also faced times where um, I have doubts and I'll get away from these things. But before it gets bad enough, I recognize and I have the ability and the self-awareness today to know when I'm not doing okay to reach the phone and tell that doctor that my stomach hurts and not try to make it seem like it's nothing. So I really appreciate you all being here. Um, I hope that you got something out of that. Um, you know, it's just an honor, and, and I want to thank you for asking me to do this. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you.